Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women Podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear from inspiring women of faith today. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. We're your co-hosts. Today, we are so excited to welcome Neil Marriott to the podcast. Neil, welcome. We're Thank so happy you. that you're here. Carly and Shailen, I'm honored. Thank you for thinking of me and inviting me to come. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. We're so glad you're here. (laughs) We're so glad you're here. We've been looking forward to it. So Neil Marriott is a beloved former counselor in the Young Women General Presidency who served from 2013 to 2018. Neil was born and raised in Louisiana in the United States, and she possesses a Southern charm that we have all (laughs) come to love. And she was converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at age 22. She and her husband recently returned from a mission to Portugal. We'll talk a little bit about that. So, Neil, we're so happy again that you're here. At the time of this recording, we're living in a very unique time where we're all dealing with COVID-19 and those new things that we're trying to navigate. And like thousands of missionaries around the world, Neil, you and your husband returned home early from your mission to Portugal earlier Mm -hmm. this year because of the COVID-19 restrictions. And Mm -hmm. you've shared with us that you and David have found peace despite your early return and the unexpectedness and the abruptness of that. And it certainly wasn't what you originally planned. So we just want to know what counsel do you have for current and return missionaries, prospective missionaries, their families, just at this unusual time about accepting our circumstances and opportunities and especially trusting in the Lord? Great question. I love the word in in your question, accept, because I think there's some sort of genius in accepting what is. Why waste energy, especially turmoil-type energy, in something that you can't change? Hmm. You know, David and I had a, were planning the 23-month mission to work with young single adults, and we'd been there 14 months in Lisbon, well, all over, up and down Portugal, and it had some fabulous experiences, testifying, speaking, getting to know people, having them in our home, and we there was a big event being planned in six months, and then we get this notice get ready to leave tomorrow. Wow. And what do you do with that? We ended up having three days grace before we had to get on the plane. But what do you do with that kind of an abrupt, I think you used that word, abrupt switch in your vision, in your direction? But you know, there was a real sweet thing that happened for me because I tend to be impatient and let's get on with things. And I was standing by the window in our little apartment and we had just learned that we were, were leaving immediately. And I was kind of like, we can't, you know, how can we? We can't say goodbye to the people in the north or the south. halfway through. Yeah. yeah we, we've got so much planned, so much going. But a, a really sweet thought wafted right through my head, and it was this, you will not be back. Now, that doesn't sound sweet. Mm. It sounds like it would break my heart. But because I feel it was carried by the Spirit, Everything in me just calmed down, and I felt this sense of acceptance, still hoping we would return. I had nothing Mm -hmm. except this feeling to base on the idea we wouldn't go back. But I said to David, David, I'm having a feeling that we won't be back. And he said, oh, no, you know, we'll be back in a month or two. Mm-hmm, the mission president's mm-hmm. plan. He was in the mission presidency. We were planning on things, and we've got, you know, he'll ha- he wants us back. I said, well, we'll see. But, of course, we didn't ever go back. And after, well, three weeks of quarantine in this little farming community about an hour from Salt Lake City, 
David came in from the backfield, having pulled a <laughs> fence out of the ditch, I think. I'm not sure what. Maybe he was digging the fence post. I'm, there was plenty to do because it was in shambles. With this big grin on his face, and I looked at him and I said, we're here to stay, aren't we? And he said, well, maybe we mm-hmm. are. And within a, two days, we had decided to sell our house in Holiday, move to this little farming community, and give away all our stuff and stay there. <laughs> I mean, we went from returning to our home where five of our children live within walking distance and being picking right back up where we were. But the abrupt change from Lisbon to the United States had robbed us, if that's the right word, or ridded us of all sorts of trappings that we realized weren't necessary. It was honestly like taking off a big winter scarf off my neck, and as it unwrapped and dropped away, I took this fresh breath of, there's worlds of things to do. There's great good to still be created, even though we can't be in Lisbon. And the hope just grew, because I truly believe that we carry around an environment with us wherever we are. No matter what circumstances change, we still have who we are. We still can be putting out who we are, and hopefully that will be of some use to someone. That's mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that is beautiful. And I think Shaylin and I were talking that I think almost all of us or many of us know a missionary who was affected or know a family who has a missionary who was affected by this. But even if we don't, I think that counsel applies broadly to Absolutely. so many. And I really liked as you were describing this heavy scarf coming off, it was like, oh, I actually like this. You know, <laughs> that maybe what we aren't expecting isn't just a bad thing that we have to deal with, but that it's it's like, oh, this is actually, this is exactly what I need, or this is exactly yeah. kind of where I'm supposed to be headed this next step. Exactly. I, I like it's that. like a new frontier, and it's a fresh start, and you can unburden yourself from many of the former details that just hung on you and held you back a little bit and mm-hmm. kind of kept you in a rut. No mm-hmm. more ruts. I like that. So something that you've shared with us that maybe came about because of this change is you found a lot of stillness and quiet, right? You've moved away from, you were living in busy Portugal or even before then living in Salt Lake City, and now you're living in a quiet farmhouse. Yes. (laughs) You find yourself surrounded by lots of empty space and and time (laughs) to think maybe. So we would love to hear your thoughts on why that stillness is important and Mm -hmm. how people who maybe aren't finding themselves in a very peaceful or quiet place, Mm -hmm. how they can find that too and what that can do for them. I wish I could just import everybody to this little village, I call it. You know what's happened? It seems like I'm wasting time, but I'm not. I sit at a big window that looks out on the back pasture And we have some tall trees to one side and some cows to the right and this kind of thing. And I have begun to absorb, this is going to sound very unusual, I guess, because I've tried to explain to David. He's kind of nodding like, well, yeah, maybe. But (laughs) anyway, nature is obedient. It follows the laws of God. It acknowledges and testifies of His creation. And just being surrounded by that, it, it's done something to my to me inside. It's, I sense it. There's order. There's order. And nature is obeying it exactly. And I think that if all of us can put into our environment, whatever it is, obedient people, scriptures that testify of obedience, that point to God, 
the more the more things point us back to the Savior and to Heavenly Father's plan, the more peace and the stillness we'll have, even if we don't have a pasture. I love that. Thank you. Neil, it's now been more than two years since your release from the Young Women General Presidency, mm-hmm. where you served with Sister Bonnie Oscarson and Sister Carol McConkie. Mm-hmm. Would you just share about one of your responsibilities in the presidency that helped you stretch and grow and where you feel like you made a difference? Wow. I can't claim to have made any difference, but I can certainly affirm that I was stretched. I, I mean, I started it off, I told President Uchtdorf when I was called, he said, how do you feel right after he gave me the call? And when I could finally collect my senses, I, I said, I feel inadequate. And I never did stop feeling inadequate <laughs> for the whole five years. But I think that overall, the general stretching that was required was to learn to listen in a council setting in particular to really listen to the voices around the table and to the voice of the Holy Ghost at the same time. Is this going the right direction? And the other thing that I have not yet repented of very well is to be quiet, to just close my mouth and let the other people (laughs) pour out their wisdom on me instead of me trying to get in there and throw in some wisdom of my own, which was probably greatly lacking. So I think that coming together in a council setting, it could be a family council, it could be a marriage council, it could be a church council, but whatever it is, there is power in counseling. I can remember one time in particular where there'd been a lot of discussion, and at all of these meetings, there's at least one general authority. We met regularly, almost daily, not quite because we weren't here every single day, but most days of the week. We're meeting with leaders, senior leaders of the church, and on occasion we met with apostles. Not often, but they saw to it that we came and talked with them on occasion. But nevertheless, there was a spirit of unity there, and occasionally we would have talked a lot, and then someone would say one thing, and there'd be a moment's pause. It felt right. It's kind of settled. It did settle, and I would think, oh, this feels right, and I'd look around, Everyone was looking the same way. That is the spirit at work. It takes a great deal of stretching to forget the world, to forget the meeting that's coming up in an hour, and to be focused and willing to share, even when you were sure that your comment was not going to be edifying. I can remember one time uh, coming to the table, and there were some important summaries to be made, and thinking, well, Sister Oscarson will handle that. So we're sitting there, and the general authority who was conducting this meeting said, we need to do 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 so and so And Sister Mary, would you give us your feelings? You know, that's those moments when you think, oh, Heavenly Father, I want to be able to put something on the table that's useful. That's a stretch, because you're walking by faith. You're walking by trust that what you have to offer, as tiny as it is, is worthwhile and helpful. And you have to put it out there. You know, you, you have to go ahead and say, as small as this offering is, here, here are my feelings. And generally, most of the people at table also have a small offering. And by the end, there's, well, it's that old thing, by small and simple means are great things brought to pass. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a theme in a lot of our recent episodes that we talk a lot about President Nelson's counsel to women that the world needs our voices. And so to hear your success stories, you know, of, I mean, feeling inadequate and feeling like what you have to offer is small 
but still trusting in the Lord to share that. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure that mm-hmm. not only personally that really strengthened you, but that probably did so much good in the organization as a whole, just by you speaking up and, and sharing your seemingly small mm-hmm. voice. Well, it was a small voice, but maybe sometimes all of us have small voices, but that doesn't mean that we can't speak up and give our small part. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, um, and it does, it does help build confidence. Uh, just last Sunday, uh, David and I had some of our family members there for a sacrament meeting. You know, we don't have a group every week or anything, but they came to visit for dinner and we had a sacrament meeting together. And we were sitting on the porch and um, testimonies just started to flow. And as so many times, here I am in the most intimate, trustworthy, loving setting. And I thought, well, I won't say anything because these three younger, young single adults need to, you know, they'll be, they'll... But eventually the spirit was like, you do need to say something. And so you open your mouth, not planning on having said anything, and out comes your heart. And everyone needs each other's hearts. I mean, isn't that what it's all about? It's about relationships. And how do you build them? You build by giving. Even if your part is small, it will make a difference. Mm -hmm. So selfishly, both Shaylin and I are young mothers, <laughs> and we would love to sit and talk with you for hours about how you survived raising children and <laughs> and took care of them and, and took care of yourself. I think because of one of your conference talks, many of us know you as Neil Marriott, the mother of a big family. You told a story, <laughs> you told a story about kind of defending your decision to be a mother and to have children to, to mm-hmm. someone. So you have 11 children, and despite motherhood sometimes being maybe discounted or less appreciated in society, our doctrine holds motherhood in high esteem. But I think this elevated status sometimes brings high expectations or these shoulds or supposed tos that are really heavy on mothers. Yes. So as a young mother, how did you navigate these expectations of caring for young children and that kind of heavy weight and find joy and meaning and and also kind of acceptance i guess of what is motherhood which mm-hmm. is it's it's hard sometimes yeah yeah young motherhood can be very lonely and i guess the redeeming factor is you've got a human being that depends on you completely and right. you know you give your heart away to that child but as far the burdens of motherhood they are real and there there were times when i would try to get up the stairs cuz i i knelt down with each child individually to say prayers every night until they turned eight. And then I said, you need to do this on your own. We'll have family prayer, but you need to Mm -hmm. now say your own prayer. But I can remember hauling myself up the stairs in tears, thinking, I can't do it. I can't get up the stairs to kneel down with all of them tonight. I just can't. But somehow flopping down on my knees by each one, sometimes with a very resentful heart, and just, you know, prompting them to say the, their usual prayer and throwing them in the bed, not really, but, you know, getting them in the bed, covering that one up and going to the next one and thinking that was a nothing burger. <laughs> that, was, that was not a very good prayer. But you know what? <clears throat> Sometimes we just have to go through the motions, and that's okay. Because lots of times that's really all that's required, just the motions. Just get that diaper changed and get that <laughs> child in bed and, you know, get the dinner on the table. That's the best we can do. Mm-hmm. And I'll look back now at all those years of the same casserole every Friday night or whatever it was and think, oh, that sounds so routine. But that 
is the key right there. I asked a, a mother when she had eight, this was in St. Louis, and I was expecting our second and was scared to death because number one took every minute of my time. So how could you have two? Mm-hmm. Especially you, Shaylin. How on earth can you do <laughs> two ends? At once, yeah. I mean, right. And um, she said to me, well, what are you scared of? And I said, well, that they'll both cry at the same time. And she <laughs> said, well, of course they will. And it doesn't matter. That's okay. That gave me permission to not be Miss Perfect Mother mm-hmm. because we can't be. We'll kill ourselves trying to be a perfect mother. But I, th- I just think it's it's routine. For me, what really saved me, I think, was a almost inflexible schedule. I found that getting up at an early time to have breakfast ready and to get what few kids were leaving the home for school and then the morning with the little children and then lunch. And then it was nap time. And that was inflexible. It was in concrete and <laughs> it was everybody not a matter went to bed. of choice. <laughs> nope. So it was routine. When that nap time came, every child went to their bed. I would read them a story sometimes, sometimes not, and they would go to sleep. And they it was kind of like they surrendered to the fact that mom was in charge, and she was the colonel, and she was going to see that they stayed in the bed. And then I would put a sign on the door, and it would say, please do not ring bell, baby sleeping, which in other words meant go away. <laughs> and I would go to bed, and I would sleep for an hour, or I'd read. So I just made sure that through all those years, that time right after lunch mm-hmm. was mine. The, but really, it's everyone has their own routine and won't all do it the same, but have a routine that kind of carries you. So every day you don't have to decide again, okay, let's see, what are we going to do today? And when am I going to get the laundry done? So the routine saved me. I think that's what it was. There is one other thing. I I could talk all day about this, but in a big family, well, in any family, I believe that each individual child needs to feel an individual attention at some point, I, the mother can't run from child to child all day long, making them feel great. But birthdays were huge because that was that was the format, that was the forum for elevating this child. I mean, there were crepe paper streamers, the same ones over and over and over mm-hmm. and over until they were so limp we had to get new ones. But, you know, and uh, a cake and a party. I mean, a few neighbors. We didn't have anything mm-hmm. fancy and go anywhere. They just came and had cake. But it was their day. And so I needed those traditions. It's kind of like stitching together all the ragged edges between things. So there were certain very important traditions, certain meals on Easter Sunday, Christmas Sunday, conference Sunday, certain dips, you know, food, maybe it defined us, I don't know. But uh, those, <laughs> those kind of all. things. <laughs> those, and the kids looked forward to that. And it kind of gave them a framework of who they were. We had lots of early family home evenings were about ancestors where they had to take the role of somebody and say something the ancestor said. Family home evening was, is the word inviolate. They, it, you could not not have it. And there were some scuffles about that in their later journals. I've read some things. <laughs> Mom made me miss the gymnastics meet because of family home evening. P.S. I like dad. That's what was in the journal. <laughs> but in any case, the, you know, we just had some things that were firmly in place. Well, it sounds Sab- like anchors, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's a great word. Mm-hmm. Sabbath day. We, David and I, learned from President Joseph Fielding Smith about keeping the Sabbath day holy in a conference talk. We'd been married about 
oh, I don't know, a year maybe. And we went to church and all that, but we also stopped and bought ice cream every Sunday. That was sort of, and when he said that, I looked at Debbie and said, oh, we can't buy ice cream on Sunday anymore. <laughs> he said, well, we can buy it on Saturday. Oh, yeah, I guess we could. So, but that of almost all the things in my early years as a member of the church, that council directed our family into holier ways because it became only family day. Neighborhood kids would come in the doorbell, and one of the adults would go to the door and say, we are not playing today. Come tomorrow and close the door. It was strictly our family. We had family home evening. We're kind of a family home. Every Sunday night we gathered, and mm-hmm. and we had one on Monday. But it became holy, and I'm watching all of my children now married. There are nine of them married now. Wow. Um, <laughs> do the same thing. Sabbath day is a family day where we worship. Anyway, those kind of anchors, that's a perfect word, Carly, of keeping the Sabbath as holy as we can, having family home evening, we, and the normal things. We had family prayer, and it was a mess, I mean, to look at our family prayer, because <laughs> there'd be a child going out the door at 7, there'd be a child going out the door at 7.30, there'd be three at 8.15, you know, but we would just kneel down over and over. Mainly my husband would catch them at the door because I would usually be practicing with one of the children during that time they were leaving. But those kind of things that are just consistent and steady, they don't require money. They don't require fanfare. They don't even require a good breakfast or a good dinner. They don't require good clothes. I can remember when our children turned 10, for better or for worse, they had to do their own laundry. And I can remember (laughs) watching my son, who was a deacon, passing the sacrament with the most wrinkled pants possible, imaginable, (laughs) and thinking, ooh. And later, one of my friends came up and said, "Um, does Daniel do his own laundry? (laughs) He does. For sure he does. But you know, those kind of things, those rules, if you want to call them rules, of expectations where you're now going to take care of your own clothes. You're 10, you know, or you're conducting family home evening. How would you like it to go? You so know, instilling some independence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And they knew that was coming. And we weren't, a, we didn't stress really hard great grades. I didn't feel that was right. That was just my feeling. We wanted them to do the best they could. But if they came home with less than an A, we were like, well, that's pretty good. Look, look at what you did do, you know, and mm-hmm. just kind of let it go. We really mm-hmm. did. So it, everyone has their own expectations. But I would just say, stay consistent to gospel principles. Routine consistency. Mm-hmm. It builds a foundation. Oh, I do have one more. David and I were absolutely solid on the same page all the time. Even if we didn't agree on something, we would go in the bedroom and say, <laughs> I don't like the way this is going. Let's try something different. But it was never in front of the children. They saw us as one. Mm-hmm. And my parents were that way. And it built a solid foundation of self confidence for m- me and my six brothers. It was like our universe was solid. I know that isn't always the case in a marriage, and it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. You can always have a big crack in the foundation and mend it and maybe come through it stronger. But nevertheless, I think those two things. Mm-hmm. Neil, as you were talking, it was just giving me a lot of hope, and it reminds me of something one of my missionary training teachers, missionary training center teachers, they said, um, never wish away a moment of your mission. With motherhood, I think that I can never wish away a second of it because it does go by so fast. And so even though sometimes you're just doing these routine things just to kind of get through, I'm hearing you talk about, you know, your your children now and 
and the things that that you really stuck to and it's like your life has been beautiful with your children and and now to see them raising families with the things that you're able to accomplish it just provides so much hope but you know my pattern won't be anyone else's i hope no one thinks oh i have to have a routine and i have to have the 10 year old mm-hmm. do his laundry and i have to you know mm-hmm. it, no the spirit will guide everyone in their own individual ways but it is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And from there will spring the correct use of time when a family and the correct spirit in the home. The manner will be different for everybody. Mm-hmm. But I think you shared some really wonderful principles that the idea of a routine can really save. That those principles apply in, in various situations, whatever mm-hmm. a situation mm-hmm. is, whatever a, a marriage is like or whatever the makeup of a family is mm-hmm. like, those things can help. Good. So we've talked about raising young children. We've talked about, um, you know, you've served missions. You've been in a very demanding calling in the Young Women General Presidency. And now you're, I mean, you're parenting adult children. So you've seen and transitioned just through many different seasons of life and parenting. And so we would love to know, what are you learning in your current season of life as a parent to now your adult children? And, you know, what are you discovering about this role? You know, I have to say that my children are a genuine joy to me and to David. And so parenting them, I think maybe goes back to what stretched me in young women. It's listening. They do come to us and talk at length about things. And we don't have the answer. Occasionally, there will be a thought and and we might say, you know, it sounds to me like such and such. But they are functioning adults and they just need a sounding board, I think. I think that's kind of the first thing is, and we welcome that. We love them to come and just talk and share and talk. And sometimes it's, you know, a long time of talking and sharing. But that is the active listening. Because often later, it will affect our prayers. It will affect what we might come back three days or a week later and call or text and say, I'm thinking about such and such you said. And it applies in, I think, this way. What have you thought about that? But as far as being very directive, we're not. Now, I'm guilty of often sending texts. I just had a thought, please read this article or, you know, <laughs> this kind of thing. And they, sometimes they'll, well, every, I send a weekly letter every week. And, uh, well, I started it on the mission about a year and a half ago. And when we got home, I just couldn't help it. It was my forum. <laughs> and I continued. Your podium. Your yes, platform. My, exactly. My podium, my platform. But in any case, David and I continue to testify according to their needs or their comments. And we, we won't ever stop that. So I think just a message of hope and love. If there is a child that has truly turned his or her back on the gospel, on our beliefs, our standards, our way of doing things, then it seems to me that that there really is no answer but love. You know, I think it's in Third John, um, I think maybe it's verse four that says, "I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth." Imagine the reverse. I have no greater grief than to know that my children do not walk in truth. I can't imagine carrying that kind of a grief, but many, many wonderful mothers do. So how do they do it? I think they do it by going to what they know is true and real and right, which is the Savior has died for all of our sins, and He's already won 
the war with pain and grief and, and fear that mothers may have. And so they go to him and they lay that burden down and they say, I can't carry it. But they pour out their heart like the people of Alma did under Amaron. And the Lord will answer them and he'll say, I'll make your burdens light. And eventually they'll be delivered just like the people of Alma. Our job is to love and to pray. You know, in uh, Moroni 7, he talks about charity, of course, in that wonderful verse 48 where it says, Pray unto the Father with all energy of heart that he will give you that gift of love. And he will bestow it on those who are true followers of his son, Jesus Christ. So we really go back to our personal choice. Are we true followers of Jesus Christ? And if so, have we prayed with all energy of heart to love this child? Because it will be bestowed. It's a gift. Love is a gift from God. It's not something we conjure up ourselves. So he gives us that love. And then we love this wayward child who has turned her back or his back on everything that we treasure and that love will disarm that child. He may not come back into the fold, so to speak, as we would have it, or maybe not even in this time on earth, but he will never forget that he is treasured and loved, and that will draw him in. And I trust in that. I trust in the covenants. I trust in the temple covenants that bind us as a family. We can't see maybe any change in a relationship, but those covenants are in place. And they are not to be denied, and happiness and joy will come from that. So we cling to what we know, what we treasure, what we love, and that what has been manifested to us by the Holy Ghost, and that will carry us through. And the Book of Mormon, you can't open the Book of Mormon without reading about Jesus Christ. And the more, in fact, I counted the pages in the Book of Mormon that don't mention the Lord or God. There are only 23, and they are the war some of the war ones and some of the coinage <laughs> ones and that kind of thing. But every chapter, I mean, it's all over the face of the Book of Mormon that the Lord is God and he has overcome the world. And if we stay with him, we will be delivered. No, thank you so much for sharing. We know that we're eager to talk with you about being a young mother, but we know, like you said, so many women are eager to hear, how do I parent adult children who are or aren't making choices that I'm happy with or that I hope that they would. We all know people or we ourselves in our own families have people who've made decisions to live different lives or go somewhere else and learning how to, like you said, listen and love them with the love that God gives us. That's the very best thing that we can do. Yeah. So I couldn't help but think as I was thinking about your story, you are a convert to the church. And although you made the choice to to join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I think there's probably some sadness or grief that your parents felt when you made a decision to join the church and to kind of step onto a different path. And you continue to stand alone in your extended family as a member of... You're laughing. This is funny. <laughs> My track record of missionary in the family is dismal. <laughs> I have no converts to, to report. I'm sorry. Uh, but I think you've talked about this email that you're sending. And I know that that goes to some of those family members each week. And I think your bravery in sharing your faith with your family and your friends is very inspiring and, and loving them and continuing to be a part of that family. I think that there are so many people who would love to hear any encouragement that you have to share to other converts 
who maybe feel alone or are yearn for family support or family encouragement that, that don't feel that yet or may never feel it. So both the encouragement you could share and then also what members of the church, maybe longtime members of the church, can do to better understand the experience of a convert. Hmm, great question. Well, I will admit that there have been some times when I have yearned to jump the gap between my faith and my family's opinions. But there is a gap, a big, deep Grand Canyon kind of gap. But what does the gospel teach us? It teaches us to love and reach out. Having said that, I want to say I come from a long line of believers, of good Christian people who live good lives, upstanding lives. They just aren't of the opinion of the restored gospel being necessary. They have their own churches, their own way of belief. So I don't want to denigrate them in any way. But when it comes to having common ground to talk, to share testimony, to work through questions about eternity, it's just this resounding echo of nothing coming back. So on the other hand, sort of like talking about a child who may have left, I have to look to what I know. And what I know is that the temple covenants for the deceased hold firm and it's not over on this earth. We can't, and I did that. I was guilty of that for a little while. We can't say, well, you know, there's just no hope there. They won't listen. That's not true. There is always hope. There's always hope because we have a Savior. And He can soften hearts like we can't. And He can teach by the Spirit like we can't. And there's always hope. So I would say if there is great aching and hurt among converts who were not accepted by their family. And I can't complain. I have heard stories of converts who were truly cut off from their family, who never were spoken to again. I never had that. Mm -hmm. I mean, my parents came out and brought 20 family members to Salt Lake so they could stand in front of the temple while I went in to be sealed. And I was the only only girl. And they had six Mm -hmm. brothers and six sons. But nevertheless, they did that. They, They supported me with a wedding reception out here. Everyone there was a stranger to them. So they have been supportive up to a point, but not to the point of discussing gospel principles. That they held firm to their own faith. And that. So, you know, you accept you, where you stand, you accept that and love them anyway and watch for a time when they would show some kind of interest in any way, shape, or form. I think in relation to this, understanding the convert experience can be difficult for some members who have always been members of, you know, grew up in the church, don't remember a time, not reading the Book of Mormon, have pioneer heritage, you Mm -hmm. know, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, this broad network of members. Mm -hmm. What can longtime members of the church do to be more supportive of converts and better understand their experiences? Hmm. I've I've been really blessed that way. I have never felt less than or left out because I had no pioneer heritage. I mean, That's never been a problem for me, but I can see how it could be for some people. I suppose that a longtime member of the church 
could put themselves in the shoes of a, a new convert or a single convert from a family and try to see how it feels to sort of be a dangling name at the end of a line, you know, of, of ancestors where there's no connection on the other side. You just wait out, waving your hand around, waiting for your father to be member, you know, you're, and I felt dang, like I was dangling for a long time. Uh, but I guess maybe going up to him and saying, I realize that you are standing all alone in the family that you grew up in. And I just want you to know that I'm grateful for your strength. It's helpful to me. You know, maybe just acknowledge their situation. I think if if there are new converts out there that feel left out, they should go to their bishop and share those feelings or with a trusted sister in the ward. Not in a bitter, you know, complaining way, but just say, I'm feeling kind of disconnected and I could use some support, you know, or something to reach out and, and take the initiative yourself and not just harbor these hurt feelings and slink away like poor me. Mm-hmm. But uh, I remember in Relief Society a few years ago, soon after they, there were some changes and there was more of a discussion format, uh, one older sister who was married to a man who was suffering with Alzheimer's, when they announced, they said, are there sisters here that have some needs that, you know, we could discuss? She raised her hand and she said, I'm lonely. I would love a phone call because my husband doesn't speak much anymore. My heart just broke. I thought, she is a beloved sister. It's always been in our ward and she's probably sitting at home with this ill husband day after day. And I I would rush, in fact, afterwards to the credit of the Relief Society. She was mobbed after. <laughs> she couldn't even get out of the room because all of us felt the same compunction. We love her, but we weren't aware. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes just facing it and saying, oh, I could use a friend next week just to come over and I don't know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good thought. Yeah. Neil, thank you so much for everything that you've shared so far. We've we've covered a lot of ground and it's going to be really valuable to, for our listeners. Is there anything else you would like to share? I believe that the women of the church have been placed where they are, not by accident. I believe that each individual sister around the world has a divine purpose that is hers alone and that in just her normal life, she doesn't have to change a thing. She can fulfill that purpose by living by the whisperings of the Spirit, becoming very sensitive to revelation, and for her to understand and realize that she is being watched and being loved and being supported in her every effort to do what is good. There is a purpose in her life a mighty purpose, and it may not look mighty to the eyes of the world, but to the eyes of God. She is very valuable. So, Neil, thank you so much for being here. I Again, I think we've talked about you've been through these various seasons of life and these various experiences, and there's so much that we can learn from your wisdom and from the things that you have learned. So we're so glad that you could join us, and we're grateful for your warmth. So oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. I've loved being here. Thank you. 
And thank you to our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode with such a delightful guest. We would love for you to rate us or leave us a review. Please take a moment on whatever platform you get your podcast to do that. And if you have an idea or a suggestion, we welcome your feedback. You can email us at podcasts at churchofjesuschrist.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to share it with your family and friends, anyone who you think might benefit from hearing from Sister Neil Marriott. Until next time, I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.